I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. Thank you for joining us. We have been in a series that has been focusing on, given the nature of racial tension in our society, what is our best path forward? All of us recognize that we don't want things to stay the way they are, but there are a myriad of options that are being presented, and some of them will do more destruction than help. So we want a good path forward, but what would that path look like? Here at the Love First Podcast, we are advocating for courageous conversations that revolutionize the way we love each other, the way we see each other, the way we interact with one another. It's been just a few weeks ago that international attention was drawn to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. That murder had taken place back in February, but a video released brought it to international attention. Many people have commented on it. One of them, a great hero of mine and partner in ministry, Latasha Morrison, challenged us to not just talk about it, but think about ways that we can actively move forward, build bridges, so that in the future, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Would you join us in being a person who could be a part of the solution? Not just talking about it, but making a difference. If that's the case, you're at the right place. Thank you for joining us this evening. If you're here for the first time, thank you for joining us. And if you're a returning partner in this ministry, thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Tonight, we're going to ask this question. What's the one thing I could do that would make the difference. When you think about what it is that sets people at odds with each other, it can be many things. You might explain it as the way someone come off. We're just different. We have different likes. We don't click. But when we're talking about it in that way, it's almost always personal. The question that we're trying to wrestle with is, what about systemic? What about cultural? What about when it comes down to race and gender and other categories in society that people use for negative categorization and accusation of others? What about those ways that we just judge groups of people, hold them under a certain kind of suspicion, and then allow the abuses of society to continue? I want to reach back into part of our conversation from the last two weeks and talk about this idea of white privilege. Now, I realize that when you put those two words together, we don't like it because of the way it makes us feel. So what I'd like for us to do is actually take that white privilege conversation and put it back into the very first stories of human interaction in the Bible, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. After God creates Adam and Eve, the Bible says at the end of chapter 2 that they were naked but not ashamed. They were transparent before each other. They were completely aware of each other, but that full awareness and including their differences didn't put them into a place of comparison or shame. 
But something changes in chapter 3, and I'd like for you to join me as I read that section of Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made, and the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Hmm. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig, fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves." Now, my guess is that's not the first time you've heard that story. It might be the first time that you've just read it verse by verse or detail by detail, but you get the gist of the story. This is the story that the Israelites shared to understand how humanity came to be like it is. The story's not over. Let's continue. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And the Lord said, Who told you? that you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now the text goes on, but what I want to focus on is two questions. The first question that God asks is, where are you? Now, I really, I don't know if you've ever uh, as a parent lost a child in a store or if you've been lost yourself, but it's a very unsettling feeling. I think we should wipe that imagination out of our mind because the omnipotent, omniscient God has not lost his only two kids. It's not like God has the angels going wingtip to wingtip through the garden hunting Adam, Eve. That's not the picture. The question isn't for God. The question is for Adam and Eve. Where are you? But notice the second question. After Adam says, ah, oh, we heard you. We, were, we did something new. We felt something new. We were now fearful and we've kind of sheltering in place. We hid from you. And God's question is, who told you that? Who told you to do that? Because see, God can remember everything God ever says. Once again, the question isn't for God. God isn't scratching God's heads thinking, 
Did I tell them they ought to hide if they ever found out they were naked? God knows he didn't. God knows that someone else's voice has gained traction, so much traction in the, in the minds of Adam and Eve that they are actually acting on that other voice in their relationship with God. Uh, you might say to yourself, well, I remember as a child when peer pressure became big and I began to act off of the voices of my peers rather than maybe my parents and so on. I mean, we get the feeling of someone's voice getting traction in our mind, but I want you to think about the significance because this is the story that the Israelites shared among themselves to explain why humanity is the way it is when it's not the way it ought to be. That some voice, some voice foreign to God has got traction in their mind. So I want you to think what happens in society when God's voice is muted, especially in supercharged conversations around race. When God's voice is uh, having trouble being heard over the noise. Can you relate to this? You say, well, Don, I thought you were going to talk about white privilege. I am. But I wanted to frame this to say, if we can't hear God's voice about white privilege, we're not going to, have, we're not going to see any change and we're not going to see any improvement. Now, there are a lot of voices that would like to get traction in our mind about white privilege. So I'd like to share with you a personal experience with this, and I think it will illustrate how important it is for us to learn how to listen, how to assess what someone is saying, and then how to put what they're saying in the context of God's question in Genesis chapter 3, who told you that. So I'm actually going to go back in time to August, the third week of August, or actually I think it was around August 26th of 2014, I was watching an evening edition of Bill O'Reilly. Now some of you, when I mention the name Bill O'Reilly, you have very fond feelings, and some of you, your blood boils, and I, I get that, so let's try to put both of those aside for a moment, because I'm telling you my story, okay? So here's what happened. So I'm listening to this, uh, uh, to his program, and he's making this argument that white privilege isn't, like, real. It's not true. It's uh, kind of like a little bit of a, like, the idea of a conspiracy. It, but this is not based in fact. It's not true. This doesn't happen. And uh, his story, I got to admit, was very compelling because he made it personal. And so I'll tell you, I'll summarize for you basically the story that he told. The story that he told was about his growing up years. He was born in 1949, and his family lived in Levittown, New York. Now, bear in mind, Te technically, he grew up in Salisbury, New York, uh, which has also been uh, uh, renamed right now again. But it's the sister city to Levittown. It's like a little suburb. So he grew up in Levittown, New York. 
And he described growing up in Levittown, and basically he said, look, it was a hard scrabble life for everyone. My parents didn't have privilege. No one had privilege. It was just, it was just a hard scrabble life. And so based on his testimony, what he's saying is, I didn't have any white privilege, and no one around us had any white privilege. And I thought, well, I don't know. He was born 11 years before I was, and that was a hard time. It was post-war and so on. But that name was unique, Levittown, and it kind of spurred my thinking. So I'm listening along, and I get out my computer, and I begin to search Levittown. And I begin to read this astounding story, this fascinating story. So here is the cool story of Levittown. So Abraham Levitt, Abraham Levitt was a contractor, had a construction company, a home, custom home building company, but his son William went away to World War II. And while his son was in the war, he was working in, this, in the unit, the Seabees, who were in, uh, establishing uh, like uh, buildings and warehouses and base housing. And he was learning a new form of construction. So when he came home, he talked to his brother, Alfred, who was an architect, and said, look, there's a new way to do construction. We have a housing shortage in America, as well as these millions of returning veterans who will need housing, and we can build houses in a fresh way. So first thing they had to do was get ordinance changes because they weren't going to put foundations or basements that were going to be built on a slab. They were going to offer six styles of housing. Now, these weren't prefab houses, but they were pre-designed and all of the supplies came pre-cut, pre-figured, pre-built. They were built in a 26-step, like an assembly line. At one point, he uh, idolized uh, a Ford Motor Company and their assembly line, but he actually called himself the General Motors of the housing industry because it was kind of like a factory line building these things. Well, these, this idea exploded. Now, catch this. A person could buy a home. They promised to deliver a brand new home for under 8000 bucks. And with the GI Bill and some other financial assistance, some people bought those homes for a total personal layout of 400 bucks, and they were in a brand new home. Well, this, this idea exploded. They built this housing development, this massive housing development in Nassau County in uh, New York. That was Levittown number one. Uh, the largest of the four that were built is outside of Philadelphia, Levittown, Pennsylvania, which was 60,000 people. Actually, the largest planned community like that in history. Another one in New Jersey and a fourth one in Puerto Rico. Well, here's what you need to know about this. William Levitt, now this is Father Abraham, this is his son, is called the father of modern suburbia. They birthed the American dream. In fact, when you drove up to a, a Levitt community, this is what it said. For sale, a new way of life. For sale, a new way of life. Well, let's take this a little bit further because something fascinating about this is that the Smithsonian, even as early as 1995, started looking for an original Levitt home 
to become a part of an exhibit, an American dream exhibit, because they wanted to talk about how that movement in Levittown spread all across the country, around the world, and changed the way of life for millions of people. In fact, one story is that as they were searching for an original Levitt home, they wanted to actually put a historical marker in front of a home that had not changed since 1948. That's how important Levittown was. The American dream, home ownership, providing low-cost, stable housing for people all across the nation. Well, I don't want to take anything away from Bill O'Reilly's personal story. In 1949, the Levitt community was actually started in 1946, so they were very early on in getting a home in Levittown. But one of the things Bill O'Reilly left out of his story that would seem very significant is that it was a whites-only community. No black people allowed, no black people to buy, no black people to rent, including veterans. Hmm. So this becomes a fascinating question. And this question is posed to the contractors, to the Levitts. Abraham Levitt, he defends his position. William Levitt, his son, defends a position. You can look all of this up. They said, we had two crises in America. We had the, the racial divide and we had a housing crisis and we couldn't solve both of them. How convenient to solve the one that makes you multi-gazillionaires, right? You say, well, veterans included as well? Well, actually, yes. I have a story that was published in The Atlantic. It tells the story of two veterans. They'd heard the news. They'd both served in World War II. They'd heard the news that you could get a house out there in Levittown. So they loaded in their car with their fiancés and made the drive out to Nassau County. When they got there and walked into the sales office, the salesman said, you know, it's not me. It's not me. But the, but the contractors have made the decision, the construction companies made the decision to not sell to blacks. Nearly 50 years later, as they were reflecting on that moment, they said that drive back to the New York borough where we lived was the longest drive of our lives you do realize that even then they understood they weren't driving out of the American dream. They were being driven out of the American dream. So as I stared at that television screen back in 2014, my blood began to boil. Because I thought to myself, all right, O'Reilly, it's all right if you want to tell your own story, but tell the whole story. Say, yeah, it was a hard Scrabble life, but the difference was, is because of my skin color, at least I got to play Scrabble. Go ahead and say, yes, white veterans were included. 
Black veterans were excluded. You could wear the American uniform in World War II, fight and die for freedom, and here we are coming up on Memorial Day, and we're remembering those who died in the fight for freedom, and you're telling us part of the story, but leaving out the story that black soldiers who came home, who lost black friends in World War II, came home with that burden to the American dream, only to discover that the skin color that came out from under their United States uniform said you're not accepted. So I have a question for you. If your argument is that white privilege isn't real, and the argument you're using is that we had a hard scrabble life as we bought our first home, and we bought this home, and we got our family started, and you leave out that your skin color was the deciding factor as to whether or not you even got the opportunity to buy? How does that square with the argument that you're making that white privilege isn't real? I decided right then that I was going to change the way I listened. That it was the Holy Spirit who was saying to me back in 2014, Don, who told you that? And how did they get traction in your mind? It was 1957, 11 years after the first Levitt community was started, that a couple, William and Daisy Myers, he also a veteran, decided to buy a home in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Now, in that Levittown community, they bought a house at 43 Deep Green Lane. In her book, published in 2005, Sticks and Stones, Daisy Myers says that she was filled with doubt, recalling and repeatedly asking herself, what would be the extent of our ostracism? Would we be able to sleep comfortably as she studied the four law officers standing on the lawn of her address in the Dogwood Hollow section of Levittown, Pennsylvania? Now, this is the first black family to move into Levittown, Pennsylvania, 1957, 11 years after the all-white Levittown was founded. Here they are moving in with their three children. He's a veteran. They're, 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 the family moves in. And as they get into the home, there's four police officers that are already stationed. I'm curious. Have you had to have police protection to move into your new neighborhood? Have you thought to yourself, how much ostracism will we face? How much danger will we face? Oh, all kinds of rumors went around. Oh, the communists are putting up the money for them to move in. They are activists that just want to move in. No, they're a family of five that wanted a house. They wanted a part of the American dream just like everybody else. 
I've watched documentaries that were made from that time. I've studied them very carefully. I've listened to the interviews. I've read the transcripts. Over 500 people gathered out there on the lawn, threatening them, throwing rocks through the front window, injuring police. When one woman was asked in an interview what she would do about a Negro family, a black family moving in, her first word was dynamite. She repeated it, dynamite. Hmm. But that wasn't the only reaction. There were countless people in Levittown, Pennsylvania, who advocated for the Myers family. There were other veterans who, in their service of the country, had sensed a different way of thinking about humanity in general. A new voice had gained traction in their minds. Men and women, not all of them from the West, not all of them from the North, not all of them from the South, but a cross-section of people who saw humanity through an equity lens that people belong to each other. In fact, some of them said, this hopefully is the world of our future. What better place for our children to grow up than to have a neighbor that's different than us? But the seeds had already been planted. I continued my research. And as I continued my research, it brought me, right then, 2014, to examine the demographics from the 2010 U.S. Census of Levittown. In preparation for this podcast, I decided to go back, research again, and update the demographic statistics of Levittown, New York. Now, I'm going to share just a couple of highlights. You have a population of a little over 51,000 people. 42% of them have a college degree. 59% of them have some college experience. 92% of them own their homes. Now, don't let that figure bypass your attention. 92% of the people in Levittown own their home. The average income in Levittown is $127,000 a year. That's the average income. The average, the median, median home value, median home value is $384,000 and some change. Now you're talking about houses that were delivered on the spot originally for under $8,000, right? With the GI Bill, which they were only allowing white GIs to use their GI Bill to buy in that neighborhood for under 8000 those houses are now the median value is 384000 Now you're talking about generations of upgrades, changes, uh, uh, home values increasing. But here's what I want to point out. If O'Reilly's family moved in in 49 and bought a home where only white people could buy a home. And that ownership, whether passed down over generations or the purchasing power 
over generations, now produces a median value of $384,000 in home value, and 92% of those homes are owned, we have one question left. How many people of color live in Levittown? And the answer in 2020 is approximately 2% less than 2%. So the seeds planted in 1949 of white skin privileging their acceptance into homeownership and the American dream, including the exclusion of veterans that fought for the country, three generations of wealth, real estate wealth, have been either passed down or accrued. So when someone says it was a hard scrabble life, yes, but you got to play scrabble. You got to join into the American dream of home ownership which continued building wealth to the point today that less than 2% of the people that live in Levittown are black, 92% of the people in Levittown own their homes, the average value, real estate value of those homes, median value is $384,000. So when I hear someone say something like, you know, white privilege isn't even real, the proof of my uh, proof of this is that you know we grew up poor and it was a hard scrabble life. I want to look at that person and say, at least tell the whole story that you got included in the game because of the color of your skin. But how does that play out now? Well, I want you to consider something. One of the things that we have learned through the coronavirus is that there is an age impact that was we were made aware of right from the beginning out in Washington State, but also an ethnicity impact. In many, many cities, many states, New York included, people of color had an enormously higher rate of infection and death than others. People begin to ask the question, what is all of that about? Some people suggested, uh, including the U.S. Surgeon General, that maybe what we're talking about is something that has to do with pre-existing conditions. Many people immediately went to pre-existing health conditions. And in some way, that plays into this equation. But the Surgeon General brought up something different. Pre-existing social conditions, and now scholarly articles are being written on density of population and COVID infection rates. I want you to think about that. Density of population and COVID infection rates. You see, when in 1949 an intentional decision was made to keep people of color out of suburban neighborhoods, 
then what were the options? The options were no work in rural areas or work that could not support your family, perhaps even for some remaining as a sharecropper where there was no way to support your family, or move to the cities where there were jobs. But even if you had served in the war and came back to that city to support your family, what was being said was you don't get to live in suburbia You've got to go back to high-density population center where we are going to, through legislation, redlining, and a myriad of other measures, we're going to make sure that you stay in a place where we, as the white dominant population, want to keep you. And that's not just a thought. That is a research set of facts that you can find in public archives just like I'm finding in public archives. You can research this just like I'm researching it. This isn't, you know, some hidden uh, a trove of information that no one has access to. I was sitting in 2014 watching Bill O'Reilly and a casual search, a casual search on the Internet led me into documentation that that is nearly endless. So when we start thinking, yeah, but I watch this newscast faithfully and they tell me that this isn't true. Could you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit say, where are you? And who told you that? Did the Spirit of God guide you to where you are right now. Well, I've got some ways that I think we could explore that, and I want to uh, focus on that for a few minutes. One of the great concerns in Scripture is the idea of freedom. What does it mean to be free? Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul boldly declares that Christ Jesus came to set us free. In fact, he says to the Galatian Christians, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. But the word freedom is used in multiple ways. So when talk, someone talks about protecting our freedoms, then the Holy Spirit would step in and say, okay, now where are you on this freedom question? And who told you that? When you define freedom a certain way, when you define freedom of action a certain way, is it being defined through the heart and the voice of God? Or do you find yourself in the garden separated from others, hiding from others, and imagining from that hiding place a thought about freedom that is not from the heart of God? A second word, all through Scripture, the word law is important. The law of Moses, and the law of God, the law of love. And Jesus said, hey, listen, man, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Law is important. And we're concerned about law. It would be a, a very small minority of people, and perhaps there are some in your circle, who would suggest complete anarchy, right? No law at all, total lawlessness. I might suggest that everyone who is advocating for complete lawlessness 
to try a whole day in the city to go drive around with complete lawlessness. And I wonder what would happen if four of them showed up at the same stoplight at the same time. No one's advocating for the wreckage of total lawlessness. Hmm. But when I hear the word law, what do I hear? How do I define it? What do I consider to be lawful, legal, when I hear someone say, and I've heard this a lot, in regard to the killing of Ahmaud Arbery? Well, and, and a petition was online. These were just God-fearing, law-abiding citizens just protecting their neighborhood. Several neighbors have suggested that that's not the case at all, that they, they didn't feel that their neighborhood needed to be protected at all. They've gone on record stating that. But I want to back up and ask the question, so if we say they're God-fearing, law-abiding citizens, are we suggesting that in their actions we could think to ourselves, I'll bet they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, where are you? And who told you that that young person that you see right there, who told you that the best plan of action from the heart of God would be to go into the house and weaponize yourself and to track the person down and to confront that person fully armed, knowing that doing so could result in an extremely explosive and deadly outcome. You understand, I'm trying to get us to think what would happen if we heard the voice of God talk to us about law? And what about morals? Is every law moral? Have we not learned in this nation that even as much as we rely on our legal system, that quite often the legal system advocates for things that we don't believe are moral? Or that people legally do unjust things? So isn't there something even higher, a higher calling? So now we've used the word justice. So I wonder what would happen if we maintained our love for freedom, but we asked God to define for us on a daily basis, what does it mean to live as free people? And we maintained our appreciation for law, but we asked God on a daily basis, tell me what law means to you and what it should mean to me and how I interact with it in and among the people among whom I live. And what if I started saying, God, teach me what it means to live a moral life the way that we see it in Christ Jesus? What does justice mean through the lens of Christ? What does wisdom, mercy, grace, and love mean through the lens of Christ? In fact, let me take it two steps further. What if we ask the question, what does it mean not to be Christian? What does it mean that I've been invited to interact with Christ. You see, I almost thought that I would uh, title this podcast this evening, The Day Christ Met Christ. I thought about that. The day that Christ met Christ. You remember Jesus said something like this. When you visit folks in prison, when you see the homeless, when you see the naked, 
when you give water to someone that's thirsty, inasmuch as you did it to the least of them, you're doing it to me. But see, he also said that when you give a cup of water in my name, you won't lose your reward. So Christ is on both ends of the cup of water. Isn't that powerful? That he's the one giving the cup of water, but he's the one receiving the cup of water. That's why I thought, what if we called it the day Christ met Christ? You see, when we think about what it means to be God-fearing, freedom-loving, law-abiding, responsible citizens, if we said to ourselves, what does it mean for Christ, the Christ in me, to see the Christ in someone else? When Christ met Christ, can you sink your teeth into that? And then what does it mean? That the Holy Spirit is in us and working through us to begin to take the Spirit into the street and into the workplace and into school and into your home to where the idea that I am a God-fearing, law-abiding, freedom-loving, responsible citizen means that I just daily listen for those two questions from the Spirit. Where are you? Come on. Where are you? Now, who told you that? so that I can begin to live in step with the Spirit. Do you recall where that little phrase comes from? That's in Galatians chapter 5. The beginning of the chapter is where Paul said it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It's at the close of the chapter where he said, but let me tell you how to live that out. Keep in step with the Spirit. And how do you know if you're keeping in step with the Spirit? He said, here, let me give it to you. Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against such things there is no law. So to be a law-abiding citizen means to be in step with the Spirit, which means the way I show I'm in step with the Spirit is that among my neighbors, among those that are different, wrapped in a different color skin, in a different cultural background, different languages, ethnicities, when I'm looking across the spectrum of citizenship, I think, hmm, what was it that the Spirit told me? Oh, that's right. Show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Could we advocate for that? Could we educate ourselves, right, so that when God says, hey, where are you? Well, this is what I'm thinking. Who told you that? Nah, just listen to the news. Did you take it any further? Well, I'm going to now. (laughs) I'm going to now because God has our attention. Yes, I'm going to take it further. I'm going to educate and I'm going to advocate. I will absolutely do that. Amen. So let me give you a couple resources as we close it out. I mentioned Latasha Morrison at the beginning of this podcast. I would suggest that you go to Be The Bridge or BeABridgeBuilder.com. Just just go search Latasha Morrison, okay? She is doing an awesome work in our nation and around the world, all right? But she's written a book and she's written a curriculum to create an organic Be The Bridge group. 
This is people of different ethnicities getting together and working through nine sessions where they can have these important conversations so that we don't just educate, but we learn to advocate. And part of the, the, the amazing outcome of this is learning how to listen. Now, before I move on from that, I also want you to recognize that right here at the Love First podcast, there's another option uh, to go along with that. And that's if you pick up a copy of Love First, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late, or go on Right Now Media and Google Love First, Right Now Media, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late, and you can get our video series and you can go through that with a small group. You're talking each of the sessions is anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. It gives a little bit of guidance on how to love in a revolutionary way. But then you in that group can have those courageous conversations. So a couple of resources. Be the Bridge and Love First, Ending Hate Before It's Too Late video series on Right Now Media. Just go get started. Right? And hey... We might have a little more shelter-in-place time, so let's use the time well. I want to close with a passage from the book of James, and I think this is just an awesome way to end our time together. James chapter 1 and verse 19. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. So God wants something for his people, just like he wanted for Adam and Eve. That's why God met them where they were in the garden. Where are you? Why are you thinking like this? Let's get up out of this and move to a better place. God says, I see where you are. I see the tension in your country. I see the tension in your homes, in your neighborhoods, and so on. I see the tension online. God says, okay, let's come up out of there. But how? He said, well, the first thing you got to realize is you're going to have to learn to listen well and reject speaking out of that impatient spirit, that defensive spirit, and reject that impulse of anger because that won't lead you to the righteous life I'm after. Well, you do realize this was written by James, Jesus' brother, right? His half-brother James. <laughs> and here's what's fascinating. Back in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records that one day Jesus' family was gathered outside a house and they said to a few folks standing around, hey, could you help us get Jesus out of there? He's lost his mind. Read it for yourself. Look it up for yourself. Look up. Just go search. Jesus' family thinks he's lost his mind. I think when James said, you know, one of the things I had to do to come on board with my brother was I had to learn how to listen. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we could follow that example and learn how to listen with love first hearts? Thank you for joining us for the Love for First podcast. We'd ask you to like, share, and subscribe. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Love first, I know. Lord, take control. Love first in my soul. Lord, take control.